So we're in the sermon series on King David. We have this week and then next week we'll be wrapping things up. We're going to be focused on, uh, once again, uh, David was a, a man after God's own heart. We're going to be focused on that next week. This week we're going to focus on um, King David. And, um, and my title of my sermon is King David, His Rise and Fall. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, we're reminded today, once again, you know, David, there's lots of different parts to David, isn't it? David is a huge figure in the Bible. Um, he's, a, he's a shepherd. He's a poet. He's a prophet. He's a king. He's a warrior. David's a pretty complex character. He's a big deal. So let me read um, uh, this uh, part of the story. And I'm, I've actually chosen, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the story in just a minute. Once again, David rises and falls and what comes up must come down. And so um, this is part of the story it actually comes from the 51st Psalm. This is David's lament after his fall. And this is what he has to say to God in him lamenting his fall. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward beings. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And let me hear joy, joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, this is a, such a powerful story today. David, by the way, you know, 3,000-year-old story. And we're still talking about David 3,000 years later. What goes up must come down, the rise and fall of King David. You know, he's doing really well at some point. You know, he's just kind of on this trajectory of going way up. And then, of course, he stumbles like many of us. You know, it was interesting when I was doing my homework for this week, I started thinking about, you know, rise and falls of different empires because, in essence, David's kingdom did rise and it did fall. Um, and what I found out, and my, you know, because I love history, I, I went and researched the greatest empires of the, um, of the world. And I didn't realize this, but the greatest, number one, who had more, more property than any other empire, the British Empire. I didn't know that. I thought it would have maybe been the Roman Empire. No, no, no. It was a, evidently it was the British Empire. And then I started thinking about, okay, so why have, and throughout world history, why have kingdoms or empires, well, why have they risen and why have they fallen? And, and what I found in the midst of my research, one word came up, corruption. Can you imagine that? 
I found this quote this week. This had to do with the Roman Empire, right? So Rome withstood its enemies for a thousand years. It finally collapsed in 476 AD after decades of corruption so weakened the empire that it could no longer stand. It turns out that corruption is the greatest evil. Even today, the president of the World Bank, Jim Young Kim, says, let's not mince words. In the developing world, corruption is public enemy number one. I thought that was interesting. Ambrose, who was uh, one of the ancient fathers who lived from 340 to 397 AD, was the bishop. This is what he said about the Roman Empire. He says, everything was up for sale for price. And this was what to begin with, what brought every evil upon Italy and resulted in universal deterioration, corruption. You know, when I was thinking about this, I, it, it kind of goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? The whole creation story. And, uh, you know, you got Adam and Eve in the garden and everything's going along perfect and everything's just great and all of a sudden, you know, God says to Adam and Eve, you know, you can have the whole garden. Everything you have is yours except one thing. You can't have that tree. You can't have anything to do with the tree. You can't have the fruit in the tree. You don't. Hey, listen, by the way, don't even go near the tree. Don't touch the tree. Don't even look at the tree. And what do they have to do? They went straight for the tree. Isn't it amazing? You know, it's kind of like when you're a kid going to the gift shop. and It says, do not touch and you have to touch it. That's what you got. And what was interesting about this story, I thought the creation story, there is a connection, I think, even to David's fall. Because in the creation story, if you go back and kind of study it, we call it, in seminary, we call it the fall. The creation story is the fall. It's the fall of humanity. It's the it's a, it's a fall of, of human nature. It's the fall of Adam and Eve. And, and the forbidden fruit, you know, what's interesting also is very powerful a lot of times when we think about the creation story of the fall, we think the first original sin is actually disobedience, which it is, in essence it is. But if you really look at that story, I think maybe the first sin, the original sin, is stealing. Because, see, Adam and Eve stole something from God because they went to the tree and it didn't belong to them. And nothing on the tree belonged to them. But they took it anyway. Why? Because maybe they just felt like they were entitled. Corruption. David's a big deal. David is a huge deal in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, you know, this is a story that's 3,000 years old. It's interesting, um, very powerful that David's name, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon series, his name is mentioned over 1,000 times in the Bible. Wow. Uh, half of 1 Samuel is the story of David. All of 2 Samuel is the story of David. Um, uh, out of the 150 Psalms that are written, the book of Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. Half of them are dedicated to David and his writings. Matter of fact, here's a, an, also another interesting thing, is that um, um, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, three out of the four Gospels have Jesus quoting David. His dying words. Wow. We know that the, the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. Matter of fact, the, Jesus is referred to at times son of God. Sometimes he's referred to son of man. But there are also times in which Jesus is referred to as son of David. 
connected to the Messiahship. Matter of fact, we got it, I found the definition of Messiah. Here's the, can you put that definition of the Messiah? So Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Hebrew word, which means anointed. In Judaism, the expected king of the divinic line who would deliver Israel from the foreign bondage and restore the glories of its golden age. Messiah. Of course, they were looking for Jesus to be that type of Messiah. The kind of like the prototype of David, that kind of Messiah. But Jesus was a whole different Messiah. He didn't come as a warrior. He came as a sacrificial lamb. David is a big deal. What goes up must come down. David's rise and fall. There is a little bit of that corruption going on. You know, you look at David's story and you go back to the beginning of the story, like the story before the story, uh, before David's fall. Uh, he, it looks like he's, I mean, he's a really good guy and he's, he's doing great things. He's got that kind of rift between him and Saul. Saul is, Saul has got, he's corrupt and he's uh, paranoid. And so um, David really could have actually become king earlier, but he honors the king. He doesn't want to do anything to disobey the king. And he continues to honor King Saul. Matter of fact, uh, David, Saul is so jealous of David that, you know, oh, they, they were saying Saul killed his, slayed his thousands, but David slay his tens of thousands. That didn't go over well with Saul. He was jealous. He was paranoid. They played this cat and mouse game for years and years. Matter of fact, David could have killed Saul at one point in a cave, but he doesn't because he honors him. You, you see that, you think, wow, we've got a real winner here, right? King David, we, when, when Saul is finally killed, David becomes king at the age of 30. And so David is uh, leading the people. He's gaining what I would call the big momentum. He's got the big mo going. The people love him. He, he does this incredible thing. He's able to unify the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Matter of fact, I got a map of this. Can you put that map up? So David takes him about seven and a half years, but he does this. This is how powerful. He's charismatic. He, he's building alliances. So he has the northern kingdom and he brings together the southern kingdom. And then in the middle of that, you see that little bitty city, that little dot there. It's called Jerusalem. So you know, what's interesting is that Jer David actually catches Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually a Jebusite town. They didn't think that they could take it, but David takes it. There wasn't really that much to it, but he actually ends up making that the capital. And what's very powerful about this is it kind of continues to unfold is that David makes that a capital and he builds himself a palace. Now, what's very powerful about this story, and I learned this this last week, I didn't realize this, but in the Hebrew tradition, there are what we call the, your good side or your, your good nature or your good inclinations and your bad inclinations. And so the, the Jewish word for there are yetzer, uh, yetzer tov, which means your worst side or your not good side, your bad side, and then your yetzer zara, which means your better side. And so in the Hebrew tradition, this is part of our inward nature, right? It goes back to the fall. You got everything's good, but then we've got to fall. What goes up must come down. David's rise and fall. But by the way, there is an interesting parallel between when, when, when things are going really good for David he is being faithful. He's rising. But when David becomes unfaithful, he falls. Isn't that part of life, isn't it? I mean, there is something to be held and understood for all of us in this story today. 
It's a 3,000 year old story, but it's part of our story. Because even in the Hebrew tradition, there is a good side and there's a bad side, all of us. It goes back to the creation story, the forbidden fruit. So I thought this was very powerful. I'm, I, I noticed that they have um, done some uh, research, this archaeological discovery, and they actually found, um, they believe that they found David's palace. Matter of fact, here's, um, here's a couple of renderings. So here's a, a kind of a digital rem, uh, rendering of what it looks like. And so can you put the next picture up? So this is what it looks like today. David's palace. And the reason why they know that they found actually some pottery, it's 3,000 years old. So they think strategically, this is where it was laid, uh, actually located. And the reason why they believe it's located this particular site, can you go to the next slide? And so um, this is ancient Jerusalem. See the walls around it? And there's David's palace. And why I put that slide up, this, put that picture up on the slide for us to see. Do you see the palace is at the highest point of the city? So when David's palace is at the highest point of the city, guess what? He's looking down on all the city. Matter of fact, if you go look to the right, you see Mount Moriah. What's Mar Mount Moriah? Here's another digital version of what it would have looked like. Mount Moriah is a big deal because this is where the temple would eventually be built at the highest point. It's also very important because this is the story that we are reminded of Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac, Mount Moriah. And the reason why I showed you that particular slide is that David looks down upon the city. Now, I found this quote this last week from a Jewish rabbi, and I, I thought it was really powerful, and this is the quote. Because what goes up must come. I've heard that somewhere. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So David... Um, we find this line in the story that's actually very powerful. And if you read through it, I mean, you can miss it. But it's a pivotal point. Here's the quote. In the time and the season when the kings led their armies into battle, David sent his armies into battle, but he stayed at home. Is David getting soft on us? Really? I mean, what kind of leadership is that? Is he just getting tired? He's kind of wore down. I don't want to go to battle anymore. I'm wore. I've, I've been there and done that. I'm just going to send all my troops out. And I will stay at home. Well, guess what? You know what? I, I thought of a modern day, kind of another David and Goliath story. And I thought this is a kind of an interesting parallel between what David did 3,000 years ago and the opposite of what we found just a couple of years ago. Can you put that next slide up of... President Lezinski. And I thought that Lezinski, I thought this was actually, this was the day evidently that he was invaded. And this is, he went on TV and says, my family are not traitors. I'm not leaving. He could have gone in exile and said, okay, you guys go off into war and I'm going to exile. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. We're staying fighting. I'm staying right here. I'm with you. Now that's good leadership. And you talk about a David Goliath story. That is a David Goliath story. And so it's very powerful that you look at this story and you look, so David is there. He's, I don't know, he's getting soft or he's just kind of lazy. I don't know. He sends, his, sends everybody out into battle. He stays at home, which means 
All the men have gone to battle and the women stayed behind. So David is there at his palace at the highest, highest point in Jerusalem. And he gets what he's doing. He's looking down over his city. And guess who he sees? A beautiful young maiden. And what's her name? Bathsheba. Wow. She was drop dead gorgeous. And what's very powerful about the story is David sees her and he has to have her. What goes up must come down. Rise and fall to David. So he, um, you all know the story. He takes his couple of his guards and sends them. He doesn't go, but he sends somebody and goes and gets her. Brings her back to the palace. Now, what? listen, there's, there's historical debate about the next thing that happens. I'm just being truthful. You can go and research it for yourself, but I'm just sharing with you all. Um, in Bathsheba's position, you kind of get the feeling, you kind of have to read between the lines, that maybe she doesn't really do this willingly. Now, think about that. Which means that Bathsheba really could be a victim. So you got the king of Israel, who's really a big deal. He's using his power, who has everything, but he wants more. And by the way, he wants something that doesn't belong to him. Do you get that? I would suggest to you all today that maybe David's forbidden fruit was Bathsheba. What goes up must come down. It's his fault. Let me, once again, here's another modern day kind of twist to the story is that, um, you know, I, I thought of a, a person that had gone through maybe possibly another, who was a victim. Um, and so can you, let me show you this next slide of Simone Biles. She was one of the spokespersons, what they call it, the Me Too movement of women who've been victims. Now, listen, let me tell you something. She's the greatest gymnast. She's the Michael Jordan of women gymnastics. She's amazing. So she went to the Olympics a couple of years ago, and she didn't do real well. It wasn't because she was not the best, because she was the best. And she, hey, listen, she's making a comeback. And what, can you say the next slide? What's interesting is what happened is that she ended up walking off, basically, the Olympic stage. Because she had it physically, but she didn't have it mentally. And the reason why she didn't have it mentally is because she had been abused. Like hundreds of other Olympic gymnasts. Wow. It's an amazing story, isn't it? So David um, has to have her. He ends up um, having sexual relations with her. And he sends her home. Then all of a sudden, Bathsheba sends message to the palace. Houston, we have a problem. I'm pregnant. Oh, my. Now what? David's got a huge problem on his hands. You all know the story. So he goes and gets Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Uriah is faithful to David. He's one of the guys that goes out to battle while David's lazy butt staying at home having an affair with his wife. Loser. 
<laughs> Uriah, hey, listen, how are things doing on that front line? Hey, boss, you know, it's tough out there, but we're fighting for you. We believe in the kingdom. We believe in you. Uh. Well, great. Listen, why don't you go take this furlough and go home to your wife? And your eyes says, I can't do that. What do you mean? No, I, I, I couldn't do that. While my fellow soldier out fighting, I can't go and have pleasure. No, 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 that won't work for me. He sleeps outside. So David says, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'll get him drunk. So he gets him drunk, thinking that kind of a drunken stupor, he'll finally go into his house. No, he doesn't even do that. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So David comes up with even more of a diabolical plan. He write, takes out a note and writes on the note to his chief commander. And he hands this note to Uriah. It's his death sentence. Can you imagine that? You're talking about diabolical. This is diabolical. And so what's very powerful about this part of the story, he hands it to Uriah. He says, hey, listen, hey, bro, take it and give it to your commander. And on the letter, it says, take, put Uriah in the heat of battle and pull back all the other soldiers in order to make sure he's very good and dead. Loser. So that's exactly what happens. Uriah's dead. Word came back to the palace that Uriah's finally dead. Word got back to Bathsheba. Their husband's been killed. Oh, my. And you know what's very powerful about this story? After Uriah's dead, David looks like the hero because he's taken Boro, little Bathsheba, under his wing. What a guy. By the way, if you go back and reread the story, he didn't wait long. It was the next morning. Ouch. Powerful story, isn't it? What goes up must come down. David's rise and fall. By the way, once again, the, pro the trajectory of, of, of David's rise is when he's faithful, when he's unfaithful, he falls. So uh, what I think is really powerful about the story is that um, the real hero of the story is not doesn't really have anything to do with David. The real story is a guy named Nathan. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Nathan. Here, can you put here? Here's, a, here's another picture of Nathan. You see, he's pointing his finger at David. David Nathan, uh, God sends Nathan to David. Uh, you know what? I, I think it's really powerful because I think we all need accountability in life. Nathan holds David accountable. I don't know if you ever struggle with alcoholism or some kind of addiction, pornography, food disorder, whatever it might be in life, we all need to be held accountable. Accountability is a really good. Even our Wesleyan tradition, when Mr. Wesley set up what we call our small groups, our bands, our, these cluster groups that Mr. His genius was that people would hold each other accountable in their small groups. It's a big deal. We all need to be held accountable. You know, I, I shared with the um, last night, this is a true story. Um, my wife is sitting right there. And I told this story. I said, you know the reason why I know for a fact I will never be unfaithful to my wife? I'll never cross that line. A is because of my love for God. 
Uh, B is because I've seen all the pain that it causes when someone's been unfaithful because I've been at this for 35 years and I've experienced with many people, couples in my church. And C, you ready? This is, to me is one of the things that holds me accountable. I got five kids. And the last thing I would ever want to do is have to go back to my five children and say, I have been unfaithful to your mother. I think maybe the greatest gift I've given my five kids is I've loved their mother. And their mothers loved me. See, see, here's this, and it's not rocket science, folks. It's, you know, when, when we're faithful to God, good things continue to happen in life. I mean, life isn't just rosy. It's not, I'm not talking about, but in our relationship with God, we continue, when we're faithful, we're on a much better course than being unfaithful because what goes up, what comes down. So Nathan has this conversation with uh, David and says, hey, and I, it's almost like a parable. I love this story. It's a great story. I think it's one of the greatest stories. It's like a parable. It's genius. The hero of the story is really Nathan. He holds him accountable and says, hey, David, let me tell you a story. And at this point, David doesn't think he knows because he thinks no one knows that chance. Everybody's about to know. And so Nathan says, okay, once upon a time, there was a guy who was very wealthy, had lots of lots of sheep. I mean, he had sheep galore. And then there's the other guy who had one little bitty lamb. And he loved the lamb. His family loved the lamb. They took care of the lamb. That's all that they had was this one little bitty lamb. And so once upon a time, there's the rich guy has a... Well, a stranger, a, a, a guest that comes to his house and he doesn't want to mess with his sheep, but he goes and gets his, the poor man's sheep and gets it and takes it and roasts that sheep for dinner in order to serve his guest. Wow. As David has listened to this story, David says, how dare that guy? How could he do such a thing? That's just horrible. That guy needs to pay back him fourfold. And then Nathan points the finger at David and says, you're the man. Oh, my. You're the man. You stole the poor little you. Wow. Powerful story, isn't it? What goes up, what comes down. You know what's interesting is very powerful about that story is that David is actually, what, he's convicted. I don't know if you've ever been convicted. I've been convicted. Chances are we all been convicted. And so what's very powerful about this, this story is that David finally comes to his senses and realizes that he repents of his sin. Right there on the spot. So here's a few little highlights, a few little takeaways from this story. There are great consequences for great sins. You can't keep any secrets from God. God knows. David's convicted to the point that he repents of his sins. By the way, I thought this was interesting. He breaks six out of ten commandments in one story. Who does that? David. God still loves David and even offers him grace and mercy. And that's powerful. Offers him grace and mercy. I learned a new term this week. Um, a Hebrew term, it's called hesed or hesed. It means covenantal love. It's, it's, it's like the, the, the Jewish version of grace. 
I mean, it's, it's like this relentless God, God's relentless love for, for us and his people and our love for God. They call it in the Jewish tradition. And this is what we find in the story is that God continues to offer David. And as we're going to find out next week, is that he's a man after God's own heart. And yet he does this really diabolical thing. I mean, it's like Dateline, 48 Hours, Forensic Files, all wrapped up into one story. You got it all there, right? It's just awful. And yet David, God still lumps David. Offers him grace because he is repentant. What's very powerful about the story, it says fourfold. Pay him back fourfold. David, there are consequences for David's sin. He loses all four of his sons. Four of his sons. Four of his sons he loses. There's all this tension, strife. What goes up must come down. And part of the downfall of David is not only his kingdom, but also this function in his family. There are consequences to our sins. And that's truth. So I close with this thought for us to think as we get ready for Holy Communion. Um, I, I'm reminded today of the covenant. Let's just close with the Covenant. I mean, God is always he's establishing covenants throughout the Bible. He establishes a covenant with David. But yet Jesus establishes a brand new covenant with us. I mean, you go back and look at the David story. It's like the perfect storm, isn't it? It's a very powerful, powerful story. It's, I mean, as he looks down there, he sees Bathsheba. That's the perfect storm. But what I thought was really interesting as I was walking out of the parking lot on Wednesday after church conference... Here's what I saw. Oh, yeah. Covenant. Covenant. New beginning. So what we find in the Old Testament is, I'm reminding you all today, what God establishes a covenant with the children of Israel. But Jesus establishes a covenant with the world. Jesus gives us a brand new beginning. He offers his grace and redemption. Even when we've risen and we have fallen tragically in life. And that is everybody in this room. And that's why we need Jesus today. And that's why we need forgiveness today. And that's why we need grace today. And that's why we need, in the Jewish version, Hasid today. We need all that today. We're reminded today that today is Sunday. It's a mini Easter, but we are also reminded on this Worldwide Communion Sunday that we are in dire need of Christ's redemption and his amazing love. And we find it and the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have come to celebrate, but we've also come to remember our transgressions. Because we have risen, and we've all fallen. Amen.